0: This is They Create Worlds, episode 35, EA, The Teenage Years.
1: If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in
2: the last place you would look, in a place where people.
0: Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will go into everyone's favorite time of life, their teenage years, a time of cringeworthiness, a time when you would just think back and go, why did I do that? Or your parents go, what happened to that sweet kid? But then you turn into an adult, able to sell game, buy games. And not care about how much you spend. Of course, we're talking about electronic arts.
2: Yes, that makes absolutely perfect sense based on that description. No, no it doesn't. (laughs) I just had to come up with these odd intros. That's right. So we've already looked at electronic arts once, but we really just focused in on the very first two years of the company. How the company got founded, how the first people got hired, and how the first products came to market. And we ended by noting that things didn't really go as well, perhaps, as Trip Hawkins might have hoped in that first year. But that in the aftermath of it, in 84 and 85, they recovered and they went on to bigger and better things and started forming into the company that we know today. So now we'd kind of like to take a little closer look at all that from 1984 through kind of the end of the 1980s, very beginning of the 1990s. To see how EA began this transition from artists as rock stars, independent developers making innovative product to the corporate machine that got very involved in branding and in sequels and in owning its own studios and all of that stuff that is more associated with EA now.
0: All right. For those who may not have listened to the original EA episode or have forgotten, but I'm certainly a lot of stuff between then and now, what would be a brief overview of the conception to where
2: we want to delve into? Absolutely. So, of course, EA is entirely the brainchild of Trip Hawkins. There is some controversy over who else you might call a co-founder of the company, which is something that we got into a little bit in the last episode, but there's, there's no doubt that the vision was Trip's and Trip was a person who very much believed that computers were the future of entertainment, not video games more broadly, but specifically computers and computer games, and that the computer game creators were going to be stars that were very comparable to a recording industry star or a best-selling author, people that should be publicized and known by... All of the fans of the entertainment, that it's not just about the game, it's also about the person behind the game. So he founded this company, Electronic Arts, based on that conceit, with kind of three core principles, which was that artist's rock star approach, the direct distribution into computer game stores rather than going through a middleman, and very efficient and well-done cross-porting of content between different computer platforms, this, of course, being a time unlike today where there were many, many, many different platforms competing for the attention of home computer users. It wasn't just that one standard kind of PC architecture. He came up with this idea. He put a team together of producers and uh, technical people, technical support people, to Support these artists that he wanted to sign, and he signed his first group of what he called software artists and company was founded in nineteen eighty two released its first product in mid nineteen eighty three Then things didn't really go that well over the course of those first releases. There were six games, three of them were fairly forgettable I mean they're not even really known today. Three of them were much more well-regarded today, but weren't all necessarily hits. The only game that was really huge right out of the gate was Pinball Construction Set by Bill Budge, which was just such a revolutionary product because it wasn't just that you could build your own pinball tables that was kind of cool, but it actually had a GUI interface because Bill Budge had been working on Lisa at Apple. So this was one of the very first experiences that the average member of the public had with a GUI interface was joystick driven interface, obviously, because we're talking about uh, an Atari 800 slash Apple II product. It had that drag and drop stuff going, though. And so that was a big hit because the drag and drop uh, ease of creating courses was very well liked. The physics were just spot on because he had already done a previous pinball game, Raster Blaster, and he really knew how those pinball physics worked. And so that was a massive hit. It sold somewhere in the order of 300,000 copies, which... I mean, that's probably equivalent to a 5 million seller in terms of today's console market. I mean, that's that's a sizable hit. Archon, which we talked about, which was kind of a combination of, of chess and a few other concepts uh, all put together in this strategy game, did all right. And then there's a third game, Mule, by Dan Bunton, that didn't actually sell very well, but in the long run, was incredibly influential because this whole idea of a multiplayer combination competitive cooperative game with some light economic elements and whatnot in it really fired the imagination of a new generation of programmers and helped kind of shape the direction of multiplayer computer gaming generally, but was not a big seller at the time. Several of those games are really well regarded now, There was really only one big hit, and that was Pinball Construction Set, and one big hit wasn't quite enough to support everything that was going on at that time in Electronic Arts. And you certainly can't build an empire
0: off of one hit. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go into the founding of EA and all the stuff that we just summarized there, just go back and
2: check out episode six, titled The Early History of Electronic Arts. That's right where we spend like an hour and a half or so saying the exact same thing I just said in like seven minutes or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. there, are, there is some interesting story there just because of some of the personalities involved. But that's, that's it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So that we can say it in a nutshell later and then tell people to come back
0: to this episode, we will now discuss what happened after that. <laughs> so they've already been founded. They've had their first six games out. One's a major hit. One's mediocre. Three are definitely forgettable. It's an okay start, but certainly not sustainable, but it is certainly not a complete failure as far as company. So how do we continue to grow and get those hits that we need?
2: So it kind of becomes clear after that first Christmas that while some of Trip's ideas are very good ideas in theory, implementing them in practice is a lot harder. One of the major reasons why the product mix didn't do perhaps as well as it could have is they had made this decision to bypass distributors, which in the long run was an absolutely great and correct decision. But in the short term here, it made it very hard for them to get into stores the way they needed to because the reason retailers like a distributor is because... They can just go to one or two guys and be like, okay, show me what you got, and then they can cherry pick what they think are the best products out of that mix. If everybody is doing their own distribution, then you might have to go to half a dozen or 10 different people and see all their stuff individually and not have as much of a chance to compare it against each other efficiently, and retailers don't like to do that amount of work. (laughs) That's not what they're there for. I want to sell things. I don't need to
0: spend all my time deciding what to sell. I want you to come to me and say, all right, nice Mr. Retailer guy. I got this product. I think these would work pretty good for you based on where you're located. What do you think? You look at it like, yeah, little Johnny will buy that one. Little Susie will buy that. I'm not sure if mom and dad really like the all-inclusive paint scratcher. Mm, I'll take your word for it because
2: you've stuck by me in the past. Right. So, you know, and, and that kind of alludes to something that can happen on the other side is sometimes if you're in with a big distributor and you have one or two hits, the, the distributor might be able to leverage the retailer into taking some of your lesser product in order to move uh, uh some stuff that maybe you would otherwise have difficulty moving if you were all out on your own. The distributor played a kind of vital role, and retailers kind of like that role. and. Electronic Arts, they only had the six products. They didn't have a lot to push. And they also really made the mistake of using reps. Representative. Yes, Manufacturer's Reps, which is a sales company. You know, you, if, you, if you're using a rep organization, you don't have your own salesmen. You don't deal with the retailers directly. You give your product to another organization, often multiple. You, you might use one rep in this region, one rep in this region, etc they promote a lot of different products maybe even in completely different categories but they kind of go out and do the pushing of the product directly to retailers it's it's a little different from a distributor because the rep is only selling your product when they're going to make a computer software sales call they're just making a call with your product they're not making a call with everyone else's product it's just that they'll be in a lot of different kinds of, of industries, and they'll take on the sales burden for all of those different things. So it's a little different from a distributor because they work for you, whereas the distributor does not work for you. You're, you're effectively hiring them to be your sales team. Mm-hmm. It's sort of outsourcing the sales guy. Right. So they'll take a commission, unlike a distributor who pays you for your product and then gets paid by the, the retailer for the product. So they used sales reps, which is fine. Plenty of video game and computer game companies have used sales reps throughout the the history of the industry. But when you've got a brand new model like this, where you're trying to do something that no one else is doing, bypassing the distributors, you really, I think, need that extra level of commitment Mm -hmm. to what you're doing. And sales reps, no matter how much they might want your product to succeed, because it helps their own bottom line. They're not your people. You don't have as much control over them. You don't have as much ability to shape the way they're going to sell that product. And when you're trying to do something new and unusual, you need a little more of that control, I think. You need someone to be able to shape the
0: message that's going out there to the public, to the retailers. It's almost like you really need to bring that in-house because if you just have someone who's trying to represent a whole bunch of products even though you're paying them, they're not necessarily going to give your product the care, understanding, really take it home and go, oh, this is really awesome. Here's different ways I can think about it where they're dedicated to that. You have probably one sales guy who's handling three, four, five, six accounts. And so he probably had some sort of framework that he goes by like, this generally works with this kind of product. This generally works with that kind of product. And then we're just going to framework each of these
2: products into my general sales pitches for these retailers. Exactly. I uh, couldn't put it better. So one of the first things they do here is they start building their own internal sales team. It turns out that their original sales guy under Rich Melman, Rich Melman, who we talked about a lot in the, the previous episode, he's the VP of sales and marketing. And then he has, you know, sales and marketing staff underneath him. The original sales guy just turns out wasn't really up to the to the challenge. I I don't know his name. I could probably find it if I scrolled back through enough really old press releases and and whatnot. But I don't happen to know his name. Several people at the EA talked about how the original sales guy wasn't up to it. But out of respect, mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody actually named him. They let their original sales guy go, and they bring in Larry Propst. Larry Propst is, after Trip Hawkins, certainly the person most identified with Electronic Arts. And he was with Electronic Arts quite a bit longer than Trip Hawkins was. He's still with him. He's still chairman. And he's really made Electronic Arts his life. I mean, that's a big part of his thing. He'll probably be affiliated with the company in one way or another until the day he dies. He started out in sales in in other businesses. He was at Johnson & Johnson for a while, for instance. And then he came to Activision. He was a salesman at Activision for a couple of years. There's conflicting stories about how he ended up leaving Activision, whether he had to be laid off or whether he had conflicts with other people there. But suffice it to say, as Activision was downsizing during the period after the crash, Larry Probst was let go for one reason or another. And so he was brought into Electronic Arts to build the sales force. He's just, he's a guy that knew how to sell products. So he organized a really great sales force that was able to start really pushing EA's product very well. And then once they had that basic sales force in place and they were starting to sell their own product uh, at a better clip, They also decided to do something else, which was highly influential, and that was to start something called an affiliated label program. Again, they borrowed this terminology from the record industry because Trip Hawkins is very, very, very influenced by the recording industry in the way that he's done the entire company. He sees the producers as akin to record producers. He sees his technical support team, and I don't mean that in an IT sense, I mean people that are building technology solutions for computer game programmers. He sees his technology support team and the artist workstations they've developed as akin to having a kind of record studio kind of environment. We give you the equipment, we give you the guy, the producer that oversees the process of creating this thing and then we sign people to our label (laughs) electronic arts
0: right they're doing the record industry equivalent of a recording studio and all the equipment and the people who know how to run that recording studio and they just need talent the rock star the programmer to come in and
2: sing in this case code and then they do the rest exactly so this is taking another kind of cue from the record industry with this affiliated label program. This would be like you own a really big record label, one of the big record companies, like a, a Bertelsmann or an RCA or a CBS Records or something. And then there's an independent label out there that is much smaller and is doing very interesting work, but because they're so small, they have no real ability to capture the attention of the major shops sometimes maybe rather than acquiring a mouth right and certainly sometimes that happens too obviously you might say okay you're doing some really cool stuff and you're a really hot label we have the access you have the very interesting product and a very interesting brand name we'll let you tap in to our distribution network so you're still the publisher but We'll provide some support and we'll provide some money and we'll provide our distribution network and obviously then take a cut of sales so that you can reach a wider audience. And so
0: that, That's very akin to something like this, podcasting. There's podcasting networks out there that help get the word out and then they find podcasts that they think is interesting and then they go to them and say, hey, let's uh, do some sort of cross-promotion thing or whatever they decide to do and they do promotion because they already have the audience. I think the saying is is that once you reach a thousand people constantly listening or interested in the thing, that's the point where it goes, quote-unquote, viral and explodes
2: out there. Mm -hmm. Now that EA had the sales force, something they didn't have before, it was their idea, I don't know who exactly, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was Larry Probst, Use this sales force for others. And so they come up with this idea of their affiliated label program, which is basically where they're giving smaller publishers access to their distribution for a cut of what goes on. And so this is different from a development deal. Because in a development deal, EA is actually publishing. So EA is signing an independent developer to a development contract and is giving them an advance on royalties. And then is selling the game and takes all of the profit, save for the royalties that have been promised to the developer, whether that's 20% or 30%, it varies. In this deal, they're not publishing it under their label. So the independent publisher takes on a little more of the risk, gets to keep a little more of the reward. It's more than just royalties. They get more of it. But they don't have to do their own distribution And they get the benefit of EA's sales force and EA's clout and EA's expertise.
0: Does EA get to put their logo or stuff onto the packaging that goes out there or is it No, no, they don't put their logo on the the packaging.
2: Right. It's it's behind the scenes. Well, I mean, people know. I mean, these affiliated label deals aren't kept a secret. But But right, they don't on a consumer
0: level. Like I go down and I go to down to back then in the eighties, I go to my local computer store, look at a Computer box and it
2: right, you're not going no Yeah, you're not going to see an EA logo on there, no, yeah, because they're publishing the other company still has to get the boxes together, get the manuals together, copy the disks, you know, all of that kind of stuff. They're publishing it. they're taking on the cost of publishing, but EA is distributing, so this is basically EA becoming a distributor, the exact same group that they were wanting to replace. This is them now becoming that. And there's nothing hypocritical about that because Trip is really concerned with the idea of we shouldn't have a middleman whose only job is to stand between us and the retailer. EA is both acting as publisher and distributor here. They're a computer game publisher that is also distributing the products of other smaller computer game publishers. So they become a more attractive option
0: as me as a small game studio go I come out with my game I could either go to standard distributor who doesn't understand computers because they're
2: different and new or I could go to EA well now I I, 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 I just want to say the distributors were computer software distributors okay they were specialists companies like soft Cell were specialists in selling computer software okay so they weren't unique on that level but that was their only job Mm -hmm. was to sell computer software. They're not going to take a chance necessarily on a small publisher just because a small publisher has uh, an interesting looking game because their revenue comes entirely from distributing software. So if their software that they sell isn't all hits, then they're going to start running into problems. EA can afford to occasionally take a risk on a product because they're also creating their own product. and. Since the publisher is taking on the majority of the cost and the majority of the risk still, because they're still the ones that have to put the game itself together, if it turns out that that game doesn't sell very much, EA is really out nothing. It's the publisher that's going to bear the brunt of the failure. EA is still going to be fine as a distributor because they're distributing their own products as well that that they know are going to be hits. So It brings the
0: duality into effect and allowed EA to get this secondary income stream that may or may not pan out, depending on how the games do. Well, and
2: and plus it helps them because... And it helps them. Because, I mean, not just in terms of profit, because remember, one of the problems that they had going independent is that they're only hawking their product to retailers. And now they have other products, too, which then
0: makes retailers go, ah, I can get not just EA games from EA... I can get EA games and a catalog of interesting,
2: smaller labels that I may not normally see. Sure, that's exactly right. And this concept was very important to kind of growing the American computer game industry. Because other companies eventually follow suit after Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts is the first dude in 1984. Origin is the first company that they sign. Origin had just started out as a publisher at that time. Activision gets into it later on, 86, 87. Broderbund gets into it in 1987. There are a lot of companies that make the move to publishing thanks to this affiliated label idea, because Origin signs with Electronic Arts, SSI, which is kind of a niche war game publisher that then becomes a less niche RPG publisher with the Gold Box series of D&D games, becomes an affiliated label of Electronic Arts. Lucasfilm Games is able to move from pure development to doing its own publishing by becoming an affiliated publisher of Activision. Interplay is able to start its path to becoming a publisher by becoming an affiliated label of Activision. SimCity, no publishers want to touch it when it first comes out because it's just too bizarre. Game with no objectives, just a sandbox where you like build things no. (laughs) And it turned out to be one of the most popular games of the era. Of course, but nobody wanted to publish it. But Broderbund was willing to just distribute it as uh, an affiliated label thing. Maxis was uh, an affiliate of Broderbund. So a lot of these really important publishers got their start in the business because they latched on to one of these kind of mega successes at the very top of the pyramid, companies like Electronic Arts and Activision, and took advantage of their distribution clout to get their product into stores. Very important concept, not only for Electronic Arts, but for the computer game industry as a whole. And Electronic Arts unequivocally started that. Uh, The producer model, as I think we talked about in the previous episode, EA takes credit for that. Activision did it at about the same time. They probably did not copy each other. They probably both came to it at essentially the same time because Jim Levy at Activision was from the record industry, so he's logically going to be looking to the record industry for some of his influence as well. So that happened at roughly the same time for both of them, but Electronic Arts created the idea of the affiliated label, and that idea is still a very important part of how things work today. I don't think anyone uses the term affiliated label anymore. That was very much a term of its time, a term of the 80s. But the idea that a larger publisher will take on distribution for a smaller publisher is basically the entire way that the distribution of of video game software continues to work today. There are really no just distributors anymore. The affiliated label system basically eliminated that middleman. The epitome of it is Steam. It's a publisher that pretty much barely publishes anymore and just distributes. <laughs> exactly, it really is. And obviously, that's in the digital space. Uh, but you know, even in the in the packaged goods space, which which still does exist despite everyone predicting its imminent demise every year, it's it's that same kind of thing. Is a company like Electronic Arts or Bandai Namco or Activision is going to distribute its own product, and it's also going to distribute the product of smaller companies. That is one of Electronic Arts' biggest contributions to kind of the business into video games, and it starts there with Larry Probst and the sales team that he builds throughout 1984 to combat the difficulties that EA had launching its first product in 1983. Okay. So that's step one to turning around EA. Step 2 is something that we also talked about briefly in the last episode and that's becoming much more keenly aware of platform shifts in the industry because Trip Hawkins was very much about being on the state of the art system. This is something we talked about in the earlier episode. The problem is that that state of the art hardware can change. And sometimes the state of the art hardware May not even be the hardware that takes off.
0: Right. You could have three or four of them, two or three of them will fail effectively, and one becomes the dominant one. You can just see that in our lifetime with Xbox One,
2: PlayStation 4, Nintendo Wii U. Exactly. So they had targeted the Atari 800 because at the time in 1982 that Trip was putting this whole plan together, the Atari 800 was the most technologically impressive computer on the market from the standpoint of being able to play computer games well. By the time they came to market, the Commodore 64 had cleaned the clock of the Atari 800. So releasing a bunch of early programs on the Atari 800, a a platform that suddenly had no future because of the turmoil going on at Atari, was in hindsight a huge mistake. They released a couple of their programs on the Apple II as well as a secondary platform, which is why something like Pinball Construction Set could still end up selling so many copies because they did have a couple of things on the Apple II, but they did not have anything on the C64 at launch. And in Christmas 1983, you wanted to be on the C64. Oh, yeah. That was the platform that was taking over. So they reevaluated the way they did forecasting. And they went from kind of forecasting 12 months out, which was a, the standard way of forecasting, to, to just forecasting a quarter out. This was kind of just a mindset change. It wasn't anything necessarily hugely innovative, It's other than the fact that they decided to use a, a model that they forecasted not quite so far out so that they could be more in tune to market changes as they happened and this is going to become very important in a couple of years uh when the home computer market goes through some some changes and we'll we'll get to that in a bit. So that's another important thing that they did and they got on the C64 in a hurry. <laughs> mm. I mean, after that first Christmas, the C64 throughout 84 and 85, that was the platform they were targeting. Period. Definitely. So that's that's another thing that happened as a result of that. The third thing was It became clear that artists as rock stars just wasn't going to work. They were not going to be able to reach a broad audience that way. It's a combination of things. I mean, it's just people don't really care about programmers. I don't know the psychology there. It's They're not like, still today, they're not like recording artists. They're not like authors. I I mean, the biggest names you hear of is
0: something like Sid Meier or Cameron McGee.
2: Well, and how how many people outside of really hardcore gamers know who Sid Meier is? I mean, he's a big name in computer gaming, video gaming circles. Will Wright is a big name in video gaming circles, but no one else has probably heard of him. I mean... Go down the street and just ask. Right, I mean... You know who Madonna is. Presumably, yes. You know who Michael Jordan is. Yeah. It's that baseball player, right? Uh, No. Oh, right. He was a baseball player for a brief time and then <laughs> became a basketball player again. Again, yes. So, but my point, I mean, you know who Michael Jordan is. I do. That is a star. You don't care about basketball one bit. You don't care about sports one bit. Nope. You know who Michael Jordan is. Mostly because of Space Jam. Right, but still, he's out (laughs) in the culture. He's in Space Jam because he's such a big star that everybody knows. Because he's certainly not in it because he's an actor. Of course not. No. (laughs) But so I mean, those are superstars. The biggest name in video gaming is undoubtedly Shigeru Miyamoto. I mean, he is the absolute most influential, most important, most brilliant game designer that has to this point ever lived. And no one would contradict that idea no there may be a small number of people that know shigeru miyamoto who aren't big video game players because he's in the media a little more but i guarantee you it's only a few more if Not you many. put if you put him up i mean he's the greatest video game designer that ever lived so if you put him up against michael jackson who's the greatest Pop star probably that ever lived. For the sake of this exercise, he will be. Or Michael Jordan, who's the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Or Babe Ruth, who's the greatest baseball player who ever lived. If you put all of those people up together, there's no question Shigeru Miyamoto will be known by the absolute fewest number of people. If you just gave him a list of big celebrities in every field and just asked them to put a check mark by the ones that right. they know who they are, he, his name's going to be checked the least. Yeah. It just doesn't resonate in that way.
0: I think the closest to that might be something like Isaac Asimov because he's known a lot in science fiction circles and because he's been in pretty much every single section of the Dewey Decimal system. But unless you like those like books like reading like science fiction, you might not know him so much.
2: Yeah, but I bet more people know who Isaac Asimov is than know who Shigeru Miyamoto is.
0: True. I will grant that. But it, it's the closest thing I can think of that you could, at least us, for the purposes of the podcast, can relate to and can see other people not knowing.
2: Mm-hmm. There, there's just never been much success, and I, I, I don't know exactly why that is, but the point is that was never really going to work, promoting artists as rock stars. Trip starts to look for other ways to kind of bring in a larger market rather than promoting his artists in that way. Now, artists still remain, software artists still remain a very important part of electronic arts. They're still getting credit for their products. They're still getting the recognition. They're still being treated well. It's just that those very first promotional ads that they did, you know, they did these big expensive photo shoots like you would do with a, with a rock group, except with a bunch of programmers. Mm-hmm. And they stopped doing that. I mean, they really start to stopped doing this promotion. And they had done their boxes like album covers. They had done these really narrow, you know, small sleeve-like boxes, like a record album sleeve. And they stopped doing that because retailers really hated that. Because they took up more shelf space because you couldn't put them all in a line spine out because they didn't have a spine. Mm. They wanted to be able to, to put them all in a line, you know, in record stores— they put them out in you know big boxes and you flip through them, but that's not how computer game stores worked. Everyone else was in boxes or baggies or whatever, and so Electronic Arts games couldn't be in in this way because they didn't want to f- turn them out and they couldn't turn them in spine in. So they get rid of the album covers as they called them. They get rid of the promotional material that's all rock starry. They get rid of some of the quote unquote fat of the record industry. Mm-hmm. They start looking at other ways that they can bring in an audience. And so there, there's a conscious decision to rather than focusing on the artists, to actually focus on licensing some brands. And not just licensing though, because that's that's very easy, but actually working with the people that they license and having them give some level of input to the game. That level varies depending on how engaged the individual is in the process. So it's more than just licensing a face. It's also bringing them in as kind of in a very loose way, co-creators. None of them ever really functioned at the level of a co-creator, but that's kind of the the promotion of it, you know, bringing these people in as co-creators. And it really starts in sports. And this goes straight back to Trip Hawkins again, because Trip Hawkins has been a sports fan his entire life. This is a guy that played all sorts of stratomatic baseball when he was a kid and loved baseball and loved football. A guy whose first attempt at creating a company back when he was in college was to create a, a football board game that he tried to sell. So he's always been a huge sports fan. So he wants to bring the company into sports. He decides at this juncture that would be a good idea if going into sports to attach a big name. He starts with basketball and it's like he knows a guy who knows a guy who knows Dr. J's agent, Mm -hmm. Julius Irving, uh, who was at that time one of the one of the greatest basketball players in the league. Through this contact of a contact of a contact, he's able to get Julius Irving to agree to be in the game, to license his his image and his name and all of that to the game. Once they have that. They go to Larry Bird's agent, who is another one of the great basketball players of the time, and get him to agree to the same deal. And it's like a ridiculous deal. It's something like $25,000 each, wow. which it's just a, a reflection of the lack of understanding at the time, the lack of knowing how big this is going to get. Computer games were still very small potatoes, so it didn't feel like something that was worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They do that. They get... Julius Irving and Larry Bird, and create a game around them. And Tripp kind of takes the lead in overseeing the design of that one himself. He brings in a programmer to actually do the programming, Eric Hammond. But it's really Tripp's baby, because he's the one that likes the sports, and he's the one that wants to do this. They create a game of one-on-one basketball between these two great players. And it's, it's a good contrast, because... Julius Irving's a tall guy. He's a dunker. He's he's a guy that comes in close. Whereas Larry Bird is a smaller guy whose real ability is sinking the three-point shot. And so you have two very different play styles that you can reflect between these two characters. But since they're both great players, it's still balanced between the two of them. They have Julius Irving and Larry Bird come in and and meet with the programmer and meet with the producers and kind of discuss their game philosophy and, and the way they play and the way they think a game like that should feel. I think Irving took more of an interest than Bird. Neither of them could be called really co-creators. I mean, you can't take it to that level. But they did invite their input. It wasn't just, let's, uh, let's have this guy's name because he's a big name. Right. It's not, okay, we got this game effectively made. We have
0: some basketball players here. We need to name them. Oh, look, here's two stars. Let's
2: just slap some names on there and color them right. Exactly. And and that brings up a very important point because these days EA is thought of very much as, as a marketing company, a marketing-dominated company, I think it's fair to say. And licensing, whether it's at EA or elsewhere, is thought of as a very marketing-driven decision. It's like you said. We've got an engine for this kind of game. Who would look great on this game? Yeah, let's get that guy. The kind of personality-based stuff that EA was doing in the 1980s, whether it be with with these guys or later with John Madden or Chuck Yeager in a completely different category of game, that was all design-driven. It was product development that was saying, who is a person that really represents this type of game well And that we really want to integrate from the ground up into the game in the terms of getting their personality in there, getting their feedback in there as much as we can, and build it from the ground up with that person in mind. This was product development driving the licensing decision, not marketing driving the licensing decision. And I think that's an important distinction. And it would definitely make the game different. I
0: said there Mm -hmm. before that, hey, we already have this game done, let's just slap on a coat of paint and some names if we're taking two basketball players and we're interviewing them with ha- with their game philosophy, then we can design the engine. We can design the play style. We can de- the abilities, the way the game works in order to take advantage of that and then balance it properly. So if we have three points from a distance thing, then I make sure three points are in there. I make sure he has abilities to make that easier to do, mm-hmm. but, has trouble close up Mm -hmm. and vice versa for his opponent. You can't really do that so well after the fact, after you made the game and you want to slap on a coat of paint and some name. Mm -hmm. If you have development doing it, then you can make those design decisions that really makes the personality of the players come through, like you said. And that can only be conveyed in a video game with how the
2: game plays, not how the game looks. Exactly. I I think that's a very good way of putting it. There's the marketing benefit of having a recognizable name in it, but it's still design-driven. It's developer-driven. This is very much the DNA of electronic arts in the 1980s. Design is law. That's, That's a term that John Romero used to describe Ion Storm, which didn't work out very well for him in in the 1990s. The difference between Ion Storm and EA being that design may be law, but you still have a bunch of MBAs running the show. Mm -hmm. But I think design is law is something that can, is a term that can very much be applied to the electronic arts of the 1980s as well. Because even a marketing decision like licensing a personality is something that is very product development driven. And integrated into product development, not just a marketing decision. So design is very much law. The the resulting game here, Dr. J versus Larry Bird one-on-one, comes out at the very, very end of 1983. Not soon enough in 1983 to really affect the outcome of that first year where things are getting difficult, but it starts impacting the bottom line more in 1984, and it becomes a multi- 100000 selling. Is that sort of like the start of EA Sports? Well, yes and no. It, it is and it isn't. We're going to get uh, to EA Sports in a little bit here. It's, it's clearly the first sports game they do. It's going to play a role, but a little further down the line here. It's also the very first time, it's not quite the first time, but it's essentially the first time that an individual has been licensed for a video game or computer game. There have been computer games based on intellectual properties before. Coleco did a Smurfs game. Mattel did a He-Man game. Of course, He-Man's Mattel's own property, but still, it's, it's essentially a licensed game. There have been video games and computer games based on organizations. So as we talked about in our Mattel Electronics episode, they didn't have baseball. They had Major League Baseball. They didn't have football. They had NFL football. But personalities, specific individuals that you're building a game around that isn't based on a movie they did or isn't an organizationally based thing, had really never been done before. The only one that had been done was an Atari game. Atari had a soccer game on the VCS, and they licensed Pele, one of the greatest soccer players of all time, to be on that game. So his name appeared in in the name of the game. The VCS is so primitive, Pele doesn't really appear in the game. In any way, because it's entirely primitive. And this is a case where the game was built and and even sold for a while before the Pele name was even gotten. So it really was a marketing thing where you're slapping a name on the game after the fact. It has nothing to do with the game. And and really the reason it even happens is because Warner Communications chairman, Steve Ross, owns a soccer team, the New York Cosmos. And during this period of time, he had signed Pele to play for the team. This is after Pele was past his prime, really but he signed him to play for this team because he wanted the publicity of having the great Pele on his soccer team. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, well, we've got Pele on our soccer team. Let's, Let's put his name on our soccer game and our video game division too. I mean, that's really all it was. This is really the first real license of an individual personality where the personality didn't previously have any connection with, the organization already, and where a game was built with the idea of the license of the personality in mind from the very beginning and not just slapped on at the end. So that's a pretty big milestone in that way, too. And it is, in a way, the foundation of EA Sports, which we'll get to. So that's a big milestone. And it provides some of the pick-me-up that EA needed at a time when they were not doing well, though it took a while. At the beginning of 1984, there was a period of time where they had like 90 days cash on hand or something like that. They are right on the razor's edge. Exactly. And Dr. J versus Larry Bird helps solve this. Another game that does is a game called Sky Fox. Not Star Fox, Sky Fox. That's right. A kind of cockpit view, more action y than Flight Simulator, kind of shoot em up space kind of game. That's created by a young man named Ray Toby. Steve Wozniak, the founder of, co founder of Apple creator of the Apple II. I mean, we know who Woz is. He was on the EA board. Hawkins wanted interesting people from various disciplines to be part of his board, so he had Woz on there. He had uh, Jerry Moss from the record industry. He had these interesting personalities on his board, and Woz was one of them, so he had an EA connection. He wasn't very involved in EA at all, but he was involved enough, and he knew Trip because Tripp worked for Apple, you'll recall. So there there was enough of a connection there that when Woz saw Ray Toby's game at a computer fair or whatever, he basically wrote uh, to Trip, like on the back of a business card or something, he said, this game is amazing, you should sign it. (laughs) And so when Steve Woz is impressed by something from a programming perspective, because this is not a businessman, but this is a guy who understands good games and good programming, because he's a big game player— you know you're on to something. So Woz kind of makes this connection between Ray Toby and Electronic Arts. So they released Skyfox, and Skyfox is a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar selling game after it's released in the first part of 84, like March or April 84, somewhere in there. And that's really the game that saves the company because it, it just does so well, and it did so well at the time that they needed a hit. And then One on One is doing really well. Dr. J versus Larry Bird is doing really well. They get another thing from a, a guy named Will Harvey called the Music Construction Set, which is a primitive kind of music composition program, and it does phenomenally well. It's not a game so much as it is kind of a tool, but it does really well. And so you've got these games doing better, and you've got these interesting concepts coming along at the exact time that EA is reforming its sales force. And so you've got a sales force that can push the product. You've got good product getting out there. You're starting to get this really big buildup, and you're starting to, to get something that's working.
0: They're certainly laying down a really good framework that
2: has a much better, stronger chance to work and survive. Right. EA, like any company, has ups and downs over the years. But after that 1983 period, when, when things didn't necessarily go as well as they might have liked, they were never really in danger after that, of not being a successful company again. There were times where they had to make big decisions on this or that, where the company could be affected. But, I mean, they were no longer in a situation where, like, in 90 days, we're out of cash kind of situation, you know.
0: Right. We make or break in 90 days
2: or else. Right. That's kind of how they start to turn things around. Looking at EA games over the next couple of years there's a couple of themes that come out of there. First of all, pinball construction set was huge, and so they really kind of push that construction set kind of game. That very briefly is something that is highly in vogue, and it's EA that's really driving that. There's the music construction set, which we just talked about, which wasn't as much a game, but it was there. And then they had the racing destruction set, which was also a construction set, but they decided to be clever with the name. And there was the adventure game construction set, which was somewhat successful. Uh, there was a game called Mail Order Monsters, which was essentially build-your-own-movie-monster kind of thing. So they're having a lot of success with those kind of games. They get into RPGs because of Interplay, which I, I mentioned briefly earlier. Interplay is a company founded by Brian Fargo, who's a very interesting guy because he's a jock and a nerd. That, that yeah doesn't make... Sense. He was a star track and field guy in high school, and he was also an avid video game player in high school. He could speak the language of the really nerdy guy, and he could speak the language of the outgoing kind of business guy. You almost never see that. And he, didn't, he, didn't do, he did not do. some programming and whatnot on, on some early games. He did some programming himself, but he very quickly transitioned into a business role. So he was never a great game creator himself, but he could speak to the game creators and he could speak to the business people. In that way, he was a little like Trip Hawkins, uh, I suppose, who also had some of those characteristics. Trip Hawkins is an even more outsized personality than Brian Fargo, but Fargo was very much into adventure games and he was very much into to Dungeons and Dragons stuff. One of his high school buddies, Michael Cranford, created a role-playing game based very much on the wizardry aesthetic, first-person view and, and dungeons and all of this, called Tales of the Unknown Volume 1, The Bard's Tale. Hmm. Interplay was, at this point, very much tied up with Activision. They had they'd gotten in with Activision, who at this time was starting, as we discussed in our Activision episodes, to sign these uh, computer game companies because they were trying to transfer transition out of consoles, and I think we even told some of this story already in the Activision context in the Activision episode, so won't get too much into it here. The important thing is they came up with this Bard's Tale RPG, and Jim Levy didn't want it. Jim Levy, we we discussed this in the Activision episode, but he felt that RPGs were nicheware for nerds. He didn't see mass market appeal, and he didn't see the artistic appeal of an RPG, so he passed on it. When one big guy rejects you, you go to the other big guy. Mm-hmm. So they went to Electronic Arts with The Bard's Tale, and Electronic Arts got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. They understood, and so they released The Bard's Tale, and it, it is the single best-selling, most likely. We don't have complete sales figures for everything in the 1980s, but it is most likely the single best-selling RPG of the entire 1980s. It's, it sells like 400,000 copies. It's like, it's huge. And so that was another big (laughs) feather in the EA cap. So they've got these construction sets. They've got an RPG line now that's doing Mm -hmm. very well for them. And they're continuing to push the sports. They're diversified. They're doing well. They've signed affiliates to kind of balance their catalog in areas that they aren't personally as strong in with their own personal software. And so they are, by the mid-1980s, becoming a very, very big deal. So this is now a period of time where the industry is very much changing and we have to kind of go into that. The Nintendo Entertainment System is about to come along. Consoles are about to come back. You also have a new generation of home computer coming in the form of the Atari ST and most especially the Amiga. The Commodore Amiga is graphically like nothing that has ever been seen before. It's orders of magnitude better than your C64. I mean, it has a 16-bit processor. It has a separate blitter chip. It has a lot of custom chips in there. It can uh, move sprites around really well. It can do a lot of colors. It's just really phenomenal. It started as a video game hardware before the crash kind of wrecked all that, and then they turned it into a computer hardware instead. Trip the technologist when faced with these two new markets coming the NES market and the Amiga market, very much chooses the Amiga because Trip wants to always be on the most advanced platform he possibly can. And the Amiga is the most advanced platform out there, bar none. Consoles he doesn't like at all, and he's never liked consoles. He didn't want to be on consoles before the crash. Of course, the crash was happening as his company was getting going. Didn't want to be on consoles. They were limiting. They were technologically inferior. The Nintendo Entertainment System is run by an 8-bit processor in a period of time when all the 16-bit computers are starting to come out. It's backwards. It's also the control he has to give up. He likes open platforms. He doesn't want to pay Nintendo to manufacture his stock. He doesn't want to pay Nintendo for the privilege of being on their system. He doesn't want to have to adhere to strict controls on what content Can go into his games. Trip wants nothing to do with the NES. The Amiga is the future. Unfortunately, the Amiga is not the future.
0: Yeah, we don't really look back on it fondly.
2: And again, for our European listeners out there, we have to put a caveat in here. I realize that, of course, after the launch of the Amiga 500, that the Amiga became a prime games machine and a very popular games machine in the United Kingdom and in Scandinavia and the Benelux and some of these other places in Europe. The European experience with the Amiga is very different than the American experience with the Amiga. But since both of us are American. We sort of were colored by that standpoint. Well, and Electronic Arts is an American company. Even though they're starting to expand a little bit internationally at this point, they're an American company. So from an electronic arts perspective, if the Amiga is not doing well in the United States... It's not doing well. Exactly. So we do have to put that caveat in there because the Amiga did all right. It did, it did pretty well in, in Europe. But in the United States, the home computer market just didn't develop. People were burned out by the first home computer market, crash, 83, 84. People weren't really interested in home computers anymore. They'd been disillusioned by them. The kids now had the NES for their game playing fix. You know, the C64 continued to be popular as a low level games playing machine, just as both the C64 and the ZX Spectrum were popular as low level game playing machines in Britain. But once the console market came back in the United States, that was kind of the end of that market. In Britain, Consoles didn't take hold till much later, as we discussed in our British software episode or British hardware episode, and so they had this continuing interest in home computers during the Atari ST and Amiga era that the United States just didn't have an interest in. Computers didn't really start infiltrating the home again in the United States in big numbers until the IBM PC, we've talked about this before, the PC came down in price because of the clone price wars, and... It became a, well, I'll have a PC in the home to do work so I can take work from home. And then, oh my God, multimedia is coming. My kid's going to be left behind educationally if we don't have a multimedia PC at home. Mm-hmm. And then that turns into now there's PCs at home. Now people are buying games for PCs. But, you know, the Amiga and ST make very little mark in the US. But Hawkins was a big, big believer in the Amiga. He put a lot of marketing muscle behind it and he was telling every, one of his independent developers, it's like, we're making Amiga games. That's what we're going to do. This is where that whole forecasting thing comes in again. Electronic Arts could have very well been sunk by the Amiga if they had continued to commit to the Amiga for too long at the expense of other platforms. But as much as Trip Hawkins was intrigued by that Amiga market, as soon as it became clear that the Amiga was not going to have the sales that anyone had hoped, they did an immediate pivot back to the Commodore 64, an immediate pivot back to programming for the 6502. That comes down to, again, the fact that they had begotten very, very good at forecasting and very good at watching where the trends were and very good at changing course quickly because they're forecasting over small periods of time, not large periods of time. They've been very good at earning on a dime. Right. EA has a history of not always backing the right horse from the beginning, but they always also have a history of when they do finally decide to back the right horse, they can pivot to it in a hurry. And that's kind of an important hallmark of Electronic Arts, an important reason for their success over time. They don't always pick the right platforms, but when they finally get to the right platform, they get there in a hurry. But they're still very wedded to computers. They're still avoiding consoles. Even as the Nintendo Entertainment System is taking off, they are still avoiding consoles as much as they possibly can. They're still focused on computer platforms. We'll get to kind of the, the, the change in mindset there in a little bit, but we'll kind of focus then on these middle years with these computer platforms. The other thing going on, other than deciding what platform to choose, is the way that developer-publisher relationships are starting to change. As you move along, as you get into more advanced 8-bit games and some of the very first 16-bit games, computer games are no longer a solo or maybe a two-person kind of effort. The more complex the game is, the more coders you need to throw at it. Plus, you start needing artists, you start needing musicians, you start needing larger teams of people. So the entire industry is kind of going through this, computer game industry specifically I'm talking about now, is kind of going through this period of figuring out how that changes relationships with developers, because games are taking longer. Games are harder to keep control of the schedule when they're external versus internal, because even though your producers watching over them, your producer's not there in the building with them every day. You're starting to have more people involved on the teams. who gets the royalties? What does that do to the structure of how you have to pay the company? All of these kind of concerns start to develop as the decade goes on, and in the very early 1980s, just about everybody was doing a combination of in-house development and external development with independent people that they just pay royalties to. EA was just about the only one that wasn't doing any internal development. But a lot of other companies were doing external development too. It's just it was balanced with internal development. Now it's coming to the point where it feels like external development is not necessarily the most economical way to go in games because the teams are getting bigger, the schedules are getting more complex. It's harder to keep track of all of that. Trip founded EA to be very much an independent artist company and Trip doesn't want to lose that at all. But there comes to be an understanding that they need to do at least a small amount of internal development. At least some. Mm Mm-hmm. There are a couple of different drivers for this. I've I've asked uh, several people that worked at the company during this period, producers like Roger Hector and Stuart Bond and Don Trager and Monty Fenafrock, who were all kind of there. I asked Trip Hawkins too, because I've interviewed him, kind of why this was happening, and and I didn't really get a consistent answer to that. So I I don't really think there's one easy answer or why they decided they had to get into internal development, but part of it is that they already had talented people and it felt like they should put them to greater use because they had always employed programmers. They had always employed technical people both to build and maintain the artist workstations that they allowed their independent developers to use and to provide support near the end of a project if things were starting to stall and they just needed to throw more people at a project to get it finished. So they'd always had people. And it felt like they should use those people, perhaps, since they're so talented, in more than just a support role. There was also the fact that technology was becoming, as games become more complex, things like engine technology or uh, software libraries or or advanced technologies, uh, advanced way of doing graphics and whatnot, these kind of technological things were becoming more important. And so it made sense to be able to develop some of those underlying technologies like game engine technology and whatnot kind of in-house. And if you're developing that in-house, then you might as well go the next step and, and use your own technology to, to create the games themselves, too, right? I mean, that just kind yeah, of makes it's already sense. there. Might as well
0: do something with all this stuff we dump money and effort and people into.
2: And the other thing is, is that it was becoming clear as they got more and more into the sports games that there are certain types of games, particularly sports games, that need to be released at certain times. In this period of its history, EA wasn't that confer- concerned about ship dates, Under Larry Probst in the 90s, ship dates became the mantra. It's like, you will hit the ship date, whether your game's ready or not. EA wasn't like that in this period, pre-publicly traded company. But there was an understanding that you want to release a baseball game in the spring, at the start of the baseball season. You want to release a football game in the fall, or maybe at the very latest December to take advantage of playoff hype. Because you want to release these sports games at the t- same time people are thinking about sports. And sports game development has been difficult for the company using external people in the 1980s. The biggest example of this is John Madden Football. John Madden Football was started all the way back in like 1983, 84, somewhere in there. It didn't come out until 1989. Uh, about that. It went through multiple developers, even Bethesda. People don't often realize this. Bethesda, the people that made the Elder Scrolls series, they started out as, as big sports game producers, and they had produced uh, a well-regarded football game called Gridiron that had rudimentary graphics but had very good play engine and very good uh, physics and whatnot. And so they even brought in Bethesda for a couple of years to try to work on Madden, and they ended up leaving without getting anything done. A lot of the big technical challenge had to do with again the personalities. John Madden was actually not their first choice as a personality. They'd gone to a couple of bigger names first but got turned down. John Madden wasn't quite as big a name than he'd won a Super Bowl with the Raiders in the 70s and he was doing football commentary, but he hadn't become the big football announcer that that he would become. He was still a, a kind of smaller name at that point. Ironically, John Madden football probably helped John Madden as much as John Madden helped John Madden football in a way. Yeah. Though I mean Madden was a, already a football celebrity. It's not like he was a complete unknown. It's just that he wasn't as huge. See, football games at that time, they were 5 on 5, they were 7 on 7. They didn't have the horsepower to portray 11 players on a side, which is what you have in in a football game on a standard play, as you have 11 on 11. And so, when they first showed John Madden, a build of the game, which I think was seven on seven. Madden was not happy. And therefore he cursed it. <laughs> no, this has nothing to do with the Madden curse, but. <laughs> well, he was angry. Obviously, he had to curse it. Sure. <laughs> and he said, if it ain't 11 on 11, it ain't football. Mm. He said it a little more colorfully than that because John Madden. Apparently he used, uh, used foul language, just about every other word. I think it was Trip Hawkins who said once in an interview that he thought the most amazing thing about John Madden is that when you talk to him, he's using curse words all the time, but he's a football announcer, you know, a broadcaster. I mean, he's a football broadcaster. And so when he goes on TV, he's able to flip a switch and not use a single cuss word for an entire football broadcast. Which is amazing. When he can't go, like, two minutes without using a cuss word in, like, his everyday talking.
0: <laughs> everyday talking, he uses it like a comma. When he's broadcasting, somehow it becomes a
2: comma and not a curse word. hmm A little tangent there, but John Madden insisted that it be 11-on-11 11 11 if it's going to have his name on it. And so they, they lost a lot of years, basically, trying to get that thing 11-on-11, 11 11, which they finally did. And it wasn't, it wasn't quite the first 11-on-11 11 11 football game. There was one before it, fourth and inches from Accolade. But it was very slow because Accolade hadn't found a good way to optimize Mm -hmm. 11 on 11. (laughs) So it didn't do that well. Madden is often remembered as the first 11 on 11 football game today, uh, though it was actually predated by one. We'll just say it's the first one that did it well. Yeah, sure. That's that's fair. That's another thing is they saw these sports games taking a long time and they knew that sports games need to hit certain marks and so it's easier to keep an eye on a project like that when it's in-house rather than external. So there kind of became this growing sentiment that they needed to have some level of internal development. So they put together a team and released their first internally developed game in 1987, and that was the computer game Skate or Die for the Commodore 64. Skate or Die was very much influenced by the games series from... Epic's this idea that you have different sporting event mini games that are that are part of a larger game, and in fact they poached most of their development staff for this game from Epic's. Hmm. Michael Kosaka, one of the main artists on it, had been at Epics. Steve Landrum, the main programmer, had been at Epic's, and the producer on it was Don Trager, who had been at Atari and had been in marketing at Atari, and he had actually started out in marketing at EA as well, but Trip kind of noticed how interested he was in the game design process and whatnot. He was like, you know, you should really produce. So Trip <laughs> Hawkins recognized that he had a producer talent there stuck in marketing and actually helped him make the transition. While he was at Atari, he had briefly been the marketing manager on a, on a game called 720 Degrees before it was released. It, w- it was not released until after he had already left Atari, but he had been working with it while he was there, and that was a skateboarding game. So it was kind of, he was kind of influenced by, he had been working with a skateboarding game and then combine that idea of skateboarding with the idea of the game series where you have a bunch of different like little mini event games within a larger game and bring in a bunch of epics people to realize that and you get skate or die, which, which was a pretty big hit. And they use that as kind of a test case. They use that as a kind of, can we do internal development well? And it turns out the answer is yes. So, so they, that is the beginning of internal development at the company. They continue to not do too much in the first couple of years, but it starts to grow as time goes on. And one of the big things that they do, probably the biggest thing they do, isn't even a game. The biggest thing they do is deluxe paint. Deluxe paint. Deluxe paint. Depaint. Like pretty pictures, here's some colored paint. Well, but doing pixel art. You know, like, it's a lot like your your paint program in, in Windows or whatever. But, well, before that program existed, you know. D-Paint started out as one of their development tools because they would build tools for their artists. And so they had programmers on staff doing that, and Dan Silva was the one that created kind of this paint tool that they decided to turn into a, a product. Everybody used D-Paint. Hmm. I mean, it was a powerful tool. I say it's like your paint program in... In windows but obviously that's a limited tool because it's free dpaint had a lot more functionality it was the photoshop of its day is really what you should call it rather than the the paint of its day it it was the photoshop of its day and just like everyone uses photoshop today everybody used dpaint and when i say everyone used dpaint i'm talking about the game developers themselves if you were creating a computer game that used pixels you used dpaint exactly Everybody used DPaint. It was the industry standard. It came out for the Amiga originally, uh, came out for other platforms later. But even people that were making games for other platforms would usually build the graphics on DPaint and Amiga, and then <laughs> convert them to whatever they because needed it to be. So well for making pixel art. So that was another huge success that they had, just monumental. EA was always a games company first. Uh, they didn't do that much. Productivity software over the years. It wasn't like, say, Broderbund, which slowly moved from being a games company to being more of a productivity software company. Rich Melman had wanted them to be more involved in other consumer product areas like productivity software. He lost that fight and he left the company. (laughs) And their first attempts at productivity software kind of back in 83, 84 hadn't done well. And that was part of the reason that Rich Melman ended up leaving the company. But D-Paint was, you know, a really, really huge success. It didn't turn EA away from being a game company, but it did very well. Stuart Bond kind of looked over the productivity software side of the company. I asked him about that when I reviewed him, of course, and he basically said the productivity stuff did well, but it wasn't doing as well as the games, especially after EA got on consoles. Mm. That's when game sales, you know, really hit the roof. Basically, they discontinued doing the productivity software stuff, because even though it was growing, it wasn't growing nearly as much as games, and they weren't going to divide their attention. It's like, if this isn't as big, kill it. <laughs> but D-Paint was a de facto standard for, you know, many, many years in, in productivity. For most of the 80s. Right, and into the 90s. And that was internally developed. Skater die was internally developed they're starting to get more involved with sports games that are also starting to be more and more internally developed because it's easier to keep control of that in-house. And so at the end of the decade, they kind of formally organize their internal development into what's called the EA Studio. Stuart Bond was kind of the driving force behind the EA Studio, and obviously a studio has recording industry connotations but in this case, he was more influenced by the movie industry because he was a big movie industry guy. And so he's thinking in terms of movie studios. He had always called kind of his productivity group Studio B, the group that ended up making D-Paint and all of that. So when it came time to organize all internal development into kind of one organization, he chose to call that the EA Studio. So that's kind of the beginning of the idea of a game studio. There are other kind of analogs to it a little bit before that. Activision, I think we talked about how they had the development centers in other parts of the country from their main headquarters. And in a way, that was kind of like a studio. The difference was that a studio has a business aspect to it as well that those design centers that Activision had didn't really have. They had remote outlets doing games for them, but, you know, business was still really being done at headquarters. A studio is going to have a development component and kind of a business component to it as well. This first studio was not remote. The EA studio was set up at EA headquarters in San Mateo. But Stuart Bond kind of took on the creative aspect of running the studio, and Monty Finifrock took on the business aspect dealing with development contracts and all of this stuff product development, both internal and I think external as well, was kind of run out of the EA studio because the the producers were all part of that. They'd experimented with a few different ways. At first, they just had producers basically going out and finding interesting talent and producing whatever tickled their fancy. Then they kind of organized them more. So you had one producer in charge of action games, one producer in charge of role-playing games, one producer in charge of this kind of product category producers, and then they kind of add another layer of organization on top of that with the formation of the EA Studio, because before the EA Studio, the producers reported directly to the top of the company, because I, I talked to Roger Hector, an Atari veteran who was briefly a producer at EA and was the producer in charge of all action and sports games for a time. Who departed before the formation of the studio, and I asked him who he reported to, and he said reported directly to Trip. He dual reported. He also reported to Bing Gordon, who was in product development as well. But I mean, he re- he reported directly to Trip.
0: That's pretty direct. You're going pretty much at the head of the company, and
2: right. And so when EA Studio, when the EA Studio was formed, then Stuart Bond became the guy that all the producers reported to. So all the producers then reported into Stewart, who was kind of the the big guy in creative there uh, until he left the company a few years later. Now you've got the EA Studio, and EA Studio still exists. It's gone through name changes. Once they went to a worldwide studio format, it became EA Redwood Shores because corporate headquarters had moved from San Mateo to Redwood Shores, another California, Silicon Valley city. Then, when they were kind of, under John Ricatello, when they were kind of getting to this idea of letting their studios be a little more individualized and not quite as cookie cutter, they took the name Visceral Games, uh, and I think that's still what they exist as today. This is the oldest EA studio, and it kind of marks the beginning of studios. Now all game developers have multiple game studios. If a publisher has an organization somewhere that's dedicated to creating games, that's called a studio mm-hmm. anymore. It became the de facto terminology used. Exactly, and it's and it's something that EA started and it started right here when product development was getting bigger and internal product development was getting bigger and they felt that they had to kind of corral all of this into this larger organization. So that finally brings us to the other big development of the 1980s, which is this EA Sports concept. Starting with Dr. J and Larry Bird one-on-one, EA had a lot of success with sports. That game did very well. They did Earl Weaver baseball that did very well. And again, Earl Weaver was a big part of it. Don Daglow, the producer of that game, and Eddie Dombrower, who was the programmer of it, they spent a lot of time with Earl Weaver learning his managerial style. Because it wasn't just about getting the physics and the gameplay right, and they were very concerned with that too, but they wanted to get the management of the game right. There'd never really been a baseball game that had a good manager mode before that. Hmm. And so they wanted to get the strategy aspect of the game very locked in. So they spent a lot of time with Earl Weaver, who's a well-renowned baseball manager, kind of putting him in the game. What would you do in this situation? What would you do in that situation? What's your management style? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with conflicts? How do you
0: make a decision? If you come up with this problem and this problem, how would you resolve
2: it? Right. And of course, they put in, they threw in some surprises too. They just didn't want it to be predictable where the game just only plays like Earl Weaver. because Not all managers play the same way, but it gave them that grounding Mm -hmm. in the reality. So again, Earl Weaver baseball wasn't just let's put Earl Weaver's name on the box. It's let's work with this guy. Let's create a philosophy of baseball strategy that adheres to what Earl Weaver would do. Mm -hmm. So they have that. Earl Weaver baseball does very well. They have this John Madden game that's going on forever. Forever in in development hell, quite frankly. Quite frankly, cursed. Yes. Trip Hawkins, that's Trip's baby. I mean, it really is. Just like the basketball game was Trip's baby, Madden football was Trip's baby. He didn't produce it himself. Joe Ibarra was responsible for producing it, but it was his game, and he was told to kill it multiple times. Well, He was told that he should kill it. He's the boss. He has the final say. Right. But he was told that he should kill it. His advisors are saying, "Yeah, you might want to kill that. You'll never make the money back on this. But he was determined to see it through. So you've got that going on in the background. Then you have Don Traeger, who I talked about before, who is also very interested in sports. Don Trager is where EA Sports begins. Obviously, there are these other games going on, and he's not the first one to do a sports game, and there are other people doing sports games. But Don Traeger is unique because he's a former marketing guy that's now in product development. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen very often. So he sees both sides. He's like, I like sports. I want to make a sports game. That's product development. But he's also like, We've got a bunch of sports games. How can we present these sports games to the public? That's marketing. Yep. So it's those two things together. So the the first thing he really wanted to do is he wanted to do a sequel to Dr. J versus Larry Bird. Because that game's from 1983. It's a little long in the tooth now. We can do it better. Larry Bird is still a big star at this point. He's still playing. Dr. J is retired. Don Trager is from the city of Chicago. And so he's keeping up with the Bulls, and he knows about the Bulls' hot new rookie, one Mr. Michael Jordan. He wasn't yeah, popular. Who's definitely going to be going places. And again, he's the dunker. He's the close-in guy. He's the tall mm-hmm. guy. He's, he's a better player than Dr. J, because he's one of the greatest of all time. No offense at all to Dr. J. But you can have the same dynamic between Michael Jordan and Larry Bird as you had between Julius Irving and Larry Bird. So he does a sequel, Jordan versus Bird one on one. At the same time, a programmer named Rob Weatherby is working on a prototype engine that can actually do 5 on 5 basketball. A- again, just like you had you didn't have 11 on 11 football games, the reason he had one on one basketball games or, you know, at most say two on two is because you could not do 5 on 5 with the technology. So he also does a team basketball game, Lakers versus Celtics NBA playoffs. This is; These are coming out in like 88, 89, somewhere in there. You've got the Earl Weaver game. You've got these other things going on. They've done a couple of golf games as well. And so it becomes, can we do something more than this? Should we present this as a block of product? And so he writes a, a marketing white paper for the company where he outlines his vision for what he calls the sports... Legends series. He puts it in that framework of Sports Legends because these are games that are licensing people. You know, they've got Earl Weaver baseball. They've got Jordan versus Bird. They've got these personalities. So they, he comes up with this Sports Legends concept where they can maybe tie all of this together. But then he changes it. And he changes it because of a competing company called Cinemaware. Cinemaware is, is very well known on the Amiga for doing well, cinematic stuff. I believe Bob Jacobs, the founder, even coined the term "interactive movie" for what he was doing. And and they weren't interactive movies in the way we think of them today. It was really a bunch of mini games held together by some vague trappings of a uh, movie genre. Stuff like Defender of the Crown, uh, which is Robin Hood stuff with a bunch of mini games all tied into some strategic conquer all of Britain thing. And it was Rocket Ranger, which was kind of 1940s sci-fi and all of this kind of stuff. But one thing that they did that was, was not interactive movie is they did a game called TV Sports Football. And it was, uh, it was a standard football game, except the conceit of it was that this game was being broadcast. There was like a news report in the game. There was like a halftime show with cheerleaders and all of this. There were these, these presentations as if... You are controlling a football game that is being aired on television. Hmm. And so Don Trager sees this. And he's like, that's what we should do. We should have this idea that we have a sports network, that EA has a sports network and these games are the things being shown or being done on the sports network. And that doesn't mean that all the games took the conceit of TV sports football and actually put it in this this kind of pseudo-television environment, but it's just that that's where he got his final concept. This is the Electronic Arts Sports Network. It's the framework of marketing
0: in order to mm-hmm. push and sell sports games. Right.
2: EASN, Electronic Arts Sports Network. Marketing and, and upper management just thinks this is all a great idea, and so they decide to go with that, and so they start branding their, their product as EASN. Well, that doesn't sit very well with a network called ESPN. Why not? They do sports too. Can't we do sports? Yeah, so ESPN sues over the EASN name. Eventually, the suit settles, and EA agrees to change the name of their thing, and so they change it to EA Sports. That's how the EA Sports name comes into being. In return, though, ESPN actually agrees to broadcast commercials of EA sports games for a period of time on their network. I mean, I'm, I'm sure EA probably still had to pay for it, but I think they got a cut, you know, probably got a cut rate or whatever. Right. You know, they, they agreed to, to broadcast some commercials for them. So this actually ends up being a huge blessing in disguise because one of the things that really helps launch Madden into the stratosphere is it gets this national TV advertising. Oh, yeah, if
0: you got sports fans going, huh, I'm watching my sports game. Well, I better get up and get another beer. Wait, what's that? They're playing football on that console little Johnny's on.
2: (laughs) I need to go out to the store real quick. Johnny, get off that console. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, this this is big. This is very big. So that is the beginning of EA Sports. It starts as this way of tying all of their product together in a marketing capacity. In a couple more years, it becomes its own division of the company. Basically, the sports thing becomes so big that they split it off from the EA Studio, and EA Sports becomes its own category with its own vice president, specifically in charge of sports. That happens around 1992,
0: I think. Okay. You got to just so big, so popular. I mean,
2: and you have to do it every year. Yeah, and and that's another thing. It's it's interesting. The first Madden was not very successful. It came out on an outdated computer because it came out for the Apple II, because it was started in '83, and at that time the Apple II was still a very viable machine. 1989, the Apple II was absolutely not a viable machine. But they're locked into that platform because that's the platform they've been it on for like seven, six, five, six years, you know. <laughs> So the first one really doesn't do that well. It's only when it goes to console that it actually starts doing well. But they decide that they should kind of, now that they've got this football game, they should update it annually. And the retailers did not want that at all. Conventional wisdom was that you did not do rapid-fire sequels of games like that because they cannibalized themselves. No one had come up with the idea yet that football changes every year, the players change and and whatnot. Football is a little different every year, and so there's always something you can do to entice people into the next generation. You can make small improvements, you can update the rosters, and that will be enough to entice a hardcore sports fan into buying it every year, even though... You haven't changed the game that much because on a yearly development cycle, there's only so much you can do to innovate.
0: And for sport, that's the only thing that you can actually do
2: that with because of sports, the popularity of sport, the fact that things do change. Right. It's something that's uniquely suited to that. We, we've had series recently, it's a recent trend, go on yearly development cycles. Call of Duty is on a yearly development cycle. Assassin's Creed was for a long time. They've just gotten away from that but those games managed to do that in a very different era where they had multiple teams working on the same series at the same time and so it's not like the development cycle for those games was just a year the development cycle was usually 2 years but with teams alternating releases so that you still have a game coming out every year but even even then you can't do too much innovation between years and you and you run the real risk of burning your audience out but with sports games you know, you can you can do that for the reasons we stated, and even in this more primitive time, when you weren't annualizing other franchises, there was a thought that you really could annualize sports games. This was the first time that this concept ever happened, and retailers didn't want it. Retailers were not interested in it, but Electronic Arts had the foresight to go ahead and do it anyway, because they really believed that sports game players would come back year after year after year for the new rosters, and the occasional new rule change or or whatever else is is happening between seasons. So it's the beginning of annualized franchises. It's the beginning of one of the most well-known brands in all of video gaming, EA Sports. And it's kind of the beginning of EA going from a nice little computer game company to a massive video game company. But of course, that doesn't happen with EA Sports or with Madden on the PC, that happens with Madden on consoles, and so that's kind of the final piece of the puzzle in the transformation of EA into something completely different. By the end of the 1980s, EA was definitely the top computer game publisher in the business. Mm-hmm. The problem is that is peanuts compared to what's being done in consoles, on the NES specifically, obviously. A hit program on the computer is 100,000. If you do 250,000, you're over the moon. Just kind of as a way of quantifying that, the Software Publishing Association, which was the kind of trade organization of the entire software industry, not just games, but games were included, along with your databases and your spreadsheets and your operating systems. They awarded gold and platinum awards for sales milestones, and that's something they took from the music industry. In the music industry, a gold record is a record that has sold 500,000 units. A platinum record is an album that has sold a million units. That's the way the record industry measures success based on the sales that they generate. For the SPA, a gold hit, a gold software, was 100,000 units a platinum software was 250,000 units. So that shows kind of the differing scale. 250,000 was like doing a million mm-hmm. in a more popular medium. It's a kind of good way to quantify that. So if you did 250,000, you did you were over the moon. Very few games, very very few games did half a million. And that was really where you topped out. I mean, there were not million sellers couple of reasons. I mean, piracy obviously dented sales some because it's easier to, to copy those floppies. But it's also just the computers were just not as, home computers were not as widespread. It, it, it really comes down to that.
0: And you still needed a certain level of sophistication to make the game
2: work. Exactly. So consoles, you know, everybody was doing half a You did half a million in your sleep on the NES. The NES was so popular and games for it were so in demand that just about everything, I mean, everything sold a couple hundred thousand. Even the absolute dogs were selling a couple hundred thousand. And if you had a hit, you were selling in the millions. So even though you had to pay a royalty, and even though ca- cartridges were more expensive, there's still way more money. You make it up in volume. You make it up in volume. So Trip wants nothing to do with this. He doesn't care about that. He likes money but he's okay with the money that EA is making in the computer game space, because they're making money. They're not poor. Trip may be the CEO of the company, but he is answerable to the board of the company. And the board is not happy. The board is like, why aren't we doing these games? Let's see, kid.
0: You are barely making 100000 to... 250000 when you can make that for your really poor games on this console and your good ones is going to get over a million.
2: And I need to buy another yacht. <laughs> yeah. Why are we a $100 million company when we could be a $300 million company? Or a more. $500 million company. And then they have a tangible uh, example of this. Because Skate or Die, which we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Skate or Die is licensed to Konami. Trip does start licensing some EA properties. Skate or Die sells 1.2 million units. It's very popular. EA just gets a small royalty on that. EA is getting pennies on the dollar for 1.2 million in cartridge sales. So it's like Why did we license our hit game to Konami and let Konami make all the money on it? You're throwing money out the window. There was an actual chance that Trip Hawkins might have lost his company at this point. There was, quite frankly, a board revolt. Uh, It's described in Game Over, the Nintendo history book. Trip Hawkins, uh, he he was candid about it with me. I mean, he didn't go as far as to say he might have lost the company, but when, when I talked to him about that period, he was candid about it with me that the board was completely and thoroughly and utterly unhappy with him. I mean, they were lecturing him. It's like, we don't care. We are content creators. We don't care where our content is sold. We provide content for any platform that that content is going to sell on. Mm -hmm. Trip had to swallow his pride, and he had to go onto consoles. He just had to do it. But Trip being Trip, he does get to do it a little bit on his own terms. He makes the Nintendo deal. He has to make the Nintendo deal. He becomes a third-party licensee. But he's also seen... This new system that's about to come on the market from Sega, mm-hmm. the Sega Genesis, the Sega Genesis is far more technologically advanced than the NES. That's up, Trip, Trip loves that. The processor is the is a Motorola sixty eight thousand, same as the processor in the Amiga, same as these sixteen bit computers that EA already has some expertise in developing for, even though they've had to go back to the 8-bit Commodore 64 to, to live, they still have that expertise with that 16-bit Motorola processor. Mm-hmm. Sega is starting from such a humongous disadvantage. They got stomped with the Master System, probably never getting more than 5% of the market, maybe as high as 7 or 8, but probably not more than 5. No reason to believe that their new system can destroy the Nintendo monopoly. So they're probably going to be desperate for allies. So Trip sees an opening to get on a more technologically advanced console on the ground floor and not have to give up as much control as he has to give up to Nintendo. So he goes to Sega and he's like, we'll publish for you, but we need a better deal. Sega at this time, just because it's it's the only thing out there, it's the model, they're basically going to follow a Nintendo model in terms of their licensing. Not as strict a content um, restrictions, but in terms of certain number of games a year, and we're going to manufacture all the cartridges, and you're going to have to pay this much royalty, that kind of thing, they're following the Nintendo model pretty closely. Well, Trip wants nothing to do with that. He likes being in control. hmm So he decides to reverse engineer the Genesis. He puts two uh, very talented programmers, Jim Nichols and Steve Hayes, on the product. Monty Fenifrock is overseeing the, the operation. They do a clean room reverse engineer of the Genesis. He knows that there's going to be a legal fight over this. Trip knows that. And it's a legal fight he'd rather avoid. He, he feels confident. I mean, they, they do it clean room, and legally, clean room reverse engineering has been upheld. It's, it's why we have PC compatibles. But it's going to be a legal fight. And so he'd rather not fight it if he doesn't have to. So he goes back and he says, we've reverse engineered your system. We are ready to go alone. We are ready to do this. But we'd rather be a partner with you. And we can really help you because you need partners. Because these big Japanese arcade companies, they are not going to sign with you. So let's lower the royalty here. Let's let us manufacture our own cartridges. Let's remove some of these restrictions on the number of games we can publish. And then we'll be willing to sign a deal with you, and we can all make money. I like money. And Sega is still not happy about this, because it's, it's one of these things, it's like... It's a strong-arm tactic. Yeah, and, and once, you, once you give an inch to one company, then you run the risk of losing control entirely. But they finally agree, because they realize the trip's going to publish with or without them, and... It's better to have Electronic Arts as an ally than an enemy. So they get a sweetheart deal. And this is very important because that is what really makes them a big company. They publish a couple of games on the NES. It's near the end of the NES's life cycle. So they, they make a little money, but not a great amount of money. But on the Genesis, they make boatloads of money. And
0: that's really why I'm not sure how you or yourself, or I've always associated the Genesis as the sports console.
2: Mm-hmm, exactly. And EA was a huge part of that. They didn't make all the great sports games on the console. The other part of that is, you know, Mike Katz is the other half of creating that situation because Mike Katz knew that Sega was not going to be able to get those hot arcade titles, Mike Katz being the, the president of Sega America at this point. So he figured that to get recognition on the Genesis, Sega would have to license personalities. And for the most part, these were strict marketing licenses of the type we think of. This wasn't the deep input situation of EA sports licensing. So they licensed Tommy Lasorda, baseball manager. They licensed, very mistakenly, Buster Douglas, because he was heavyweight boxing champion for all of, like, five seconds. <laughs> that one didn't turn out. But, yeah, you know, they, they licensed Pat Riley, a basketball coach, for their basketball game. And the crown jewel that they license is Joe Montana the great quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. And so they are going to make the Genesis the sports system as much as anything because that gives them a counter to Nintendo and Nintendo's arcade games and big arcade companies. Joe Montana Football is assigned to Mediagenic, the former Activision, which we've talked about, and we talked about how uh, Mediagenic was forging a relationship with Sega and how that all fell apart because of the bankruptcy that that Mediagenic went through. Talk about that in our Mediagenic episode. Once Joe Montana football falls apart at Mediagenic, they don't have a lot of time to get a game out by Christmas. They can't start from scratch, they being Sega. They know that Electronic Arts has a football engine. They've done John Madden on the Apple II, and they're in the process of converting that to the Genesis. So they know that EA already has an engine. They come to EA and they're like, we need Joe Montana football. We need it now. Can you please do this for us? And this is great for EA Mm -hmm. because this is the competitor. The competitor to their football game is going to be Joe Montana football. Mm -hmm. Now they're going to be creating both games and they can deliberately leave features out of the competition. Oh, nice. Nice. And and they don't do it in a way that sabotages the game, but it's like, let's say John Madden football, I don't remember the exact numbers, so the numbers are made up, but let's say John Madden football has 16 different plays you can run on offense. Joe Montana football is going to have four plays you can run on offense. Mm-hmm. It, it's not that they make one game not work as well in terms of making it jittery or buggy or stuttery. It's just like, we'll put a little bit more into Madden than we put into Montana. hmm <laughs> And EA only does the first Joe Montana football. The, the series goes on for several more games. And obviously, Sega doesn't want to keep it in a competitor's wheelhouse. That, that was just a desperation play. And they actually don't quite get it out by Christmas. They get it out in, like, January, which is still not terrible because even though they miss the Christmas rush, which obviously would have been great, it, at least you're still in the football season.
0: You're still in the football season. It's still before the big... Uh, playoffs than the Super Bowl.
2: So that is the other part of EA Sports, and and particularly John Madden becoming big, is that they get to craft the competition's game and make sure that their game is better. Wow! So John Madden football on the Genesis is a huge hit, and that's the beginning of that whole series. And being on console is the beginning of EA hitting the stratosphere by 19... 93 or 94, somewhere in there, they are a $500 million company, and they've only gone up from there. It's the seeds that were sown in this early 80s period, or this mid-80s period, that's when they came up with the beginning of the studio system. That's when they came up with the beginning of EA Sports. That's when they figured out how to do a balance of internal development and external development. And so... The labeling. The labeling. Right. And so you gradually go from this idealistic small company to a company that at this stage I still think is fairly idealistic, but it's bigger, it's more organized and it's less naive about the business practices it needs to follow in order to become big. And you can really kind of signal kind of the beginning of the end of this period of EA with with Trip Hawkins' departure as CEO in 1991. Because without getting into the story in detail, because it's, it's a whole other topic, really. When he knows that he has to go to console, and because he doesn't like giving up the control, he decides that he's going to make his own console hardware platform that's going to be an open platform. Very low royalties. None of these ridiculous, in his mind, restrictions that the other companies put in, and not manufactured by any one company. It's going to be the VCR of... Video games where there's a common base of technology, but multiple companies manufacture, and maybe this one's got slightly different features from this one and slightly different features from that one, but they all play the same tapes. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning of the project that ultimately becomes 3DO. But again, he faces a board revolt over this. The board, once again, is like, we are a content company, we create software for whatever platform that software will sell on. We do not create hardware. (laughs) And so he finally had to spin the 3DO project. I'm not sure it was called the 3DO quite yet, but he had to spin what became the 3DO project out of Electronic Arts. Very soon after that, he had to make a choice between the two companies, essentially. And he decided that 3DO being the startup, being the company trying to do something new, was the thing that needed his attention more. And so he made the decision to leave management at Electronic Arts. He remained chairman of the board. He kept that on until 1994. But he decided to leave EA to focus on 3DO. And that was his decision. He wasn't forced out. It's just he knew that he couldn't run both companies. And he made a choice as to which company he would run. And he resigned the presidency first. And then a couple of months later, he resigned the CEO position. And that's when Larry Probst, that great salesman who built so much of the infrastructure that made EA so big, took over as president and CEO of the company, and he remained CEO of the company for uh, like a decade and a half. I mean, a long, long time. And he was a businessman, first and foremost. He was a salesman. He was far more concerned with getting the commodity out the door. He had been for doing consoles the entire time. He was the one that was like, we have to meet ship dates. He was the one that's like, we have a certain number of slots for product and we have to fill all those slots and we have to get stuff out. He's the one that's like, we have to make everything more uniform. They're buying external studios and they're kind of organizing them under the CA umbrella in a way that makes them a little less individualistic, a little more corporate. That's the thing that, like, hardcore gamers kind of over time have rebelled against because hardcore gamers are often more interested in in the creativity of games and the innovation of games and not so happy with licenses and yearly sequels and just get stuff out the door no matter the quality and yada 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 that EA kind of transformed into under Larry Probst and it worked for a long time they were highly successful uh, This is a different chapter of VA's history. Won't get into now, but over time, it it really went too far in that direction. They did have to try to inject some creativity and and whatnot again, and that that leads to a whole different era of the company. But the departure of Trip Hawkins is really symbolically and even to some extent practically when you get this final change from from this artists are the stars idealism of the 1980s. Into the cold, hard corporate console realities of the 1990s.
0: Got to take off your hippie shirt, put on that business suit, and do a job, you darn kid,
2: <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so that uh, that kind of sums up what what you have labeled the the teenage years of Electronic Arts, when the company went through a lot of changes uh, in a short period of time that made them bigger and more responsible, and and at the end of the day, left them. All grown up.
0: (laughs) Yes, definitely the teenage years. Is there anything else we need to touch on? I think that covers it. Alrighty then. What shall we delve into next time?
2: Last year, we just had the 20th anniversary of one of gaming's absolute modern icons. That being Laura Croft of of the Tomb Raider series. Tomb Raider, of course, is the product of, of a company named IDOS uh, that became a very big British publisher and had a, a rapid rise to the top and an almost equally rapid fall that that ended up with it ultimately becoming first merged with another British company SCI and then becoming a subsidiary of a Japanese company in Square Enix. So, I thought it might be fun to kind of look at this kind of rise and fall of IDOS. This. Uh, this British publisher, to, to get something a little more international because we have had a lot of U.S. focus recently, it feels like. All
0: right. So we'll do IDOS next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian. Dot .wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License.